Open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to try to finish up this chapter today and get back into our summaries next week. But we'll see how, how far along we can get. Romans chapter 7. The final paragraph is some of the most contested real estate in the Bible. It's also some of the most important truth that you and I can understand as we approach our sanctification, as we attempt holiness before the Lord, as we try to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that for us so that we have it set in our minds. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. What I am not practicing, for I'm not practicing, rather, what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. One of my best friends in seminary was... A guy named John, he was a dear friend to me then. He continues to be a dear friend to me to this day. John was one of the most godly influences on my life. He remains that even in my ministry today. We became good friends. We became roommates. And John was a, well, ended up being the best man in my wedding. There was a time, actually it was a, a week in John's life that I will never forget and I can guarantee you he won't either. We were second-year seminary students rooming together, and John began to get very irritable. It was unlike John. He was a very godly man who didn't get irritable at any, irritated at anything. He just wasn't himself. He had trouble sleeping. He had trouble eating. He began to vomit. And then he had an unquenchable thirst. Finally, we convinced him that he needed to go see a doctor, and we took him to the emergency room. A simple blood test revealed what was becoming obvious to us all. John was a diabetic. He needed help with his insulin. He developed adult onset diabetes. He was in the hospital then for the next week, learning how to deal with insulin levels and shots and diet and exercise. Problem was John, for some time, had been developing a serious physical problem but he didn't know what was going on. And because he didn't know what was going on with his blood sugar levels, had he not gone on to, to actually address that, it would have killed him. 
In short, he figured out pretty quickly that to live a healthy life, he had to understand what was wrong with his body. It's a great illustration, a living truth of the reality of you and me in our spiritual pursuits for godliness before Christ, in our hopes of being sanctified, in our, in our desire to be more like Jesus, and wanting to be healthy in our soul. It means that we have to understand something is very wrong with us, fundamentally broken in us and on us. We have broken hearts. That's what this last half of Romans 7 addresses. This is what it's about. Now, we've studied for five chapters justification by grace through faith, that God declares us righteous because of our belief in the gospel. Then beginning in chapter 6, he starts the imperative section where he now tells us what to do because of that. And the first imperative in the book, he tells us, don't submit your body, your members, the the parts of your, your flesh as instruments for doing unrighteous things. Said another way, don't present your mind as the instrument for thinking unrighteous things. Paul explains to us that we have a war going on. He uses the word war in the passage before us. There's something waging war against our own souls. And what's waging war against our own souls is, drum roll, us. It's our flesh. Now we have to be careful here because as Paul talks about this, we don't want to become Platonists or Neoplatonists who believe that the flesh is wicked and the soul is good. It's not that simple. Because what animates our flesh is actually immaterial. It's our desires. It's our souls. I have a quote for you. I think we can put that up. Uh, John Owen says this. When we realize we, a constant enemy of the soul abides where? Within us what diligence and watchfulness we should have. It's almost like my friend John finding out he had diabetes. You need to understand that there's a problem within. How woeful is the sloth and negligence then of so many who live blind and asleep to this reality of sin. There's an exceedingly Uh, efficacy and power in the indwelling sin of believers for it constantly inclines itself towards evil we need to be awake then if our hearts would know the ways of God our enemy is not only upon us but it also is in us end quote That's in that masterful book on sin and temptation where Owen outlines for hundreds of pages the reality that you and I, though we're saved, though we're justified, though we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, have residual in us vestiges of sin that we'll battle with the rest of our lives. This is important real estate in your Bibles. From verse 14 to the end of the chapter, Paul changes his writing style dramatically. He changes from third person primarily to first person. This is a personal testimony. He's using the word I. We've talked about that for weeks. That some people think when he says I, he's giving voice to the Jews or unbelievers or talking about his unredeemed state. The the tense of the verbs here make it very clear to me. Paul's talking about himself and he's talking about himself in the present tense. But the reality of Paul talking about the evil that's in him parallel and in tandem with the desire to honor God makes some people very, very uncomfortable. 
This passage really talks about how to understand the war within. Just as my friend needed to understand his diabetes to manage it, you and I need to understand the war within us in order to manage and have victory over our sin. So we follow this outline for the last few weeks, three theological insights, three theological insights to understand about the war within. We have to get it. We have to understand. Just as my friend had to go to actual classes in the hospital to understand how to manage his, uh, his blood sugar issue, you and I should be in the classroom of God day in and day out to understand how to manage the wicked evil that still resides within us. We looked, first of all, last week at the source of sin, the source of sin. Let me just summarize that for you. This is the final section beginning in verse 14 where Paul identifies, where does this sin come from? If I've been saved, if I love Christ, why do I still sin? If I've been delivered from the domain of darkness, why don't I live like I'm a citizen of the kingdom of light? If I've been set free from being a slave to sin, why does Paul still say I'm subject to sin's slavery and mastery? Why do I still struggle with sin as a believer? Well, the apostle begins to answer this question by going back to that important theme he was discussing the whole book, namely the law. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. That just means it's of heavenly origin. The law comes from God. We can't point the law, even though the law is the one that points out our sin. He says, don't blame the messenger. Understand the message. Just because the law tells us that we're we're, uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, and even when we're redeemed and saved, we still struggle with sin, the problem isn't the law. Now, some people actually were saying that. Look, I'm saved, so don't tell me I have an issue and I have a problem. Paul says that's this foolishness. Then he explains, but I am of flesh. Now, the word flesh is used in two different senses with Paul. Sometimes it just means being human, uh, being, being alive and not dead. But more oftentimes, it has a darker meaning. It's the effects and affects of sin. It's our tendency to lean into wrongful and sinful desires. That's what the flesh means. We can define flesh by this. Yet to be glorified humanness. It's that part of us that has, has yet to be redeemed between here and heaven. Remember, uh, justification saved by God's grace in position, declared righteous in soul, Glorification, one day will be righteous in body without the propensity to sin. And then the rest of life is sanctification. It's our pursuit of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Then he says sold into bondage to sin. We talked about this last week. How can that be that we're sold into bondage to sin when chapter 6 verses 6 and 7 say that we've, we've been freed from the bondage of sin? Well, he says uh, that, that's true. In position, it's ongoingly true in our practice. Remember, it's a perfect passive participle in the Greek. You say, what does that mean? You could translate that. I have been and continue to be sold into bondage to sin. Sin is personified. It's someone who, who demands its, um, its obedience and its mastery. It's a difficult thing. Then he goes on to verse 15. What I'm doing, I don't understand. That... What he's saying is, I just don't get it. It's not that he doesn't understand theologically. He's going to explain in the next verses what he means. 
Verse 16, I do not want to, I do, uh, the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law when I do that, confessing that the law is good. He actually says, when the law tells me not to do something and I want to do it anyway, it proves that the law works and my soul is broken. So then he summarizes that, that source of sin uh, uh, theological insight in verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Is he really passing the buck? Is he really saying, well, it's not really me. The devil made me do it. It's my sin. It's my flesh. God, if you would take me home to heaven right now, I'd be okay. But the, the problem is I'm, I'm still in the flesh. Well, yes and no. He's not saying I'm not responsible He's saying, I understand that the real me who's been saved, the positional Christian that God has called into his kingdom, it's not me, that real me, that saved me, that wants to do this, but the sin which dwells in me. This is why we call it indwelling sin, the residue of sin. We said last week, it was so funny, I gave you the illustration of a sticker, you try to get off a price tag, and you take the top off, it's ineffective as, as communicating anything uh, of the, the price of, of, of an object, and then you spend a lot of time trying to pick it off, it's like sin, and so many of you gave me so many solutions for getting stickers off. I appreciate that, but don't ruin my illustration, okay? I wish we could spray, spray WD-40 on it, and it would be gone. Wouldn't there be, be great to have WD-40 for the soul? Yes. Well, there is. It's called glorification and death, so you can pray for that. That's review. Let's look at a second theological insight, and that's our struggle with sin. Number two, the struggle with sin. The source is our flesh, our unredeemed, yet-to-be-glorified humanness. I'm not the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. It's that part of me that's yet-to-be-glorified. He goes on in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. You say, hang on, Paul. I thought you were a believer and the Holy Spirit indwelt you. We're going to find that out in chapter 8. What do you mean that nothing good indwells you? He, he knows you're going to say that. So he says, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Yes, God has invaded a believer with his Holy Spirit. God has invaded the believer with his work But God has not, and God will not, complete that work until we are resurrected. He's not yet finished his conquest of us. He will one day, but he hasn't yet. In verses 18 to 20, Paul clarifies the struggle with indwelling sin more than anywhere else in the entire corpus of his writings. And he does so not by theological instruction, as he does clearly in Galatians. He does so here by personal testimony. He says, this is my struggle with sin. And when you hear him say these things, these apparently contradicting, clashing principles, when you really understand what he's saying, if you're like me, you you could just smile and say, "I, I know exactly what he's talking about. I feel exactly how he feels. My frustration is just like Paul's about me. He talks about this collision with the the me that wants to honor God and the flesh part of me that still pursues sin. John MacArthur writes, the flesh serves as a base camp from which sin operates in the Christian's life, end quote. He's right. You understand that sin has a base camp in your heart. Sin has a, a headquarters 
Owen says, find out what associates in your heart Satan has. Again, the term flesh here describes that part of us that's not yet glorified wherein residual sin and sinful desires dwell. Is it in your actual body? No, not, not, not exactly, even though that's, that's a part of it. It's really in your mind and in your body that work together with desires that are contradictory to Scripture. The starting point, though, for any believer to get a handle on their sanctification, the starting point for anyone who wants to grow is to join Paul in this blistering self-assessment. Do you really believe that? There's nothing good in me that is my flesh? That's a pretty important self-assessment. It's like my friend saying, there's no insulin in my body. I have to supply it. There's nothing good in my flesh. And then look at verse 18 again. The willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Do you understand that? Are there things that you want to do that you don't do? Are there things that you do you wish you didn't? Is there a desire to please God that's not always fulfilled? Verse 19, for the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. This is not hard exegesis. This is not difficult to understand if you've been a Christian for very long. He's describing the passionate tension a believer feels with the sins and omission, of omission rather and commission. You understand there's two categories of sins, omission and commission. Omission, you omit things. You're not doing the things that you should be doing. Commission is we do the things that we shouldn't be doing. See that? Two categories of sin. Paul recognizes them both in this passage. There are elements of the law. Paul says, I know I should be obeying and I don't do it. Not only that, there are things that the law strictly forbids that I find myself not only doing but wanting to do. Look at the end of verse 19, what he calls it. I practice the very evil that I do not want. Is that your assessment of your heart? Do you think you have problems or do you see that there's an evil heart that needs to be weaned off the flesh and put on Christ? But, verse 20, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Wow, that sounds like a denial of personal responsibility, doesn't it? I mean, are we able to say before God, look, Paul gave me this excuse. I just want you to know, Lord, I'm not the one doing it. It's, just, it's your fault, your problem for leaving me in this flesh. What Paul is saying is that there is an epic battle between the saved soul and residual sin. He's talking about the, the new Paul, the saved Paul, that is in constant conflict with the old Paul. Remember when we started in chapter 6, we read Martin Lloyd-Jones' really excellent illustration where he says that when God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into light, there's a road that exists between those two kingdoms with, with a fence. And he takes us out of the one field and puts us across the road in the other field. 
The problem is when we, when we live life right next to the road and we keep hearing the desires and the whispers of our old life and our old ways, it's really easy to fall and to fumble. And his point is we need to be moving deeper and deeper into that field and farther and farther from away from our old self. And at the same time, remember what the writer to Hebrews says? We need to lay aside our besetting sin. You have a besetting sin or sins. You say, what's a besetting sin? It's just, it's just something that keeps hanging on, tackles you, holds on. It's difficult. It may be something that you struggle with for weeks or months or years or decades or a lifetime. The question isn't whether you have that desire. The question is, are you battling that desire? Listen to how Paul describes this conflict in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. It's not just this. Look at this, look at this picture that Paul paints. And also the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Galatians five seventeen. It's not just that the flesh is pulling you one way and the spirit is pulling you the other. They're pulling you and they're fighting each other at the same time. The flesh sets its desire, he tells the Galatians, against the spirit. Your flesh, my flesh, actually fights against the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Why? Because it's broken. It is horrifically broken. So why doesn't God just fix us when we're saved? Isn't that a good question? Well, when he saves us, why, why don't we sanctify too? And then we're just these perfect people floating around, walking around the earth, showing the great standard of God. Why, why do we still have this? Why didn't he take us to heaven or redeem us all the ways, give us resurrected bodies at the moment of our justification. Why didn't that happen? It's really simple. God is glorified. This is so encouraging. God is glorified in our choices to choose his way over our flesh. It brings him pleasure. It brings him glory. It brings us satisfaction. I know we can talk all day about the... The struggle and the frustration with our sin. We could have lots of discussions over lunch about that. But have you tasted? Have you sensed? Have you ever caught a glimpse of a victorious moment when you chose to do the right thing to honor God over the wrong thing that dishonored God? Can you remember that moment where you sensed the smile and the pleasure of God? where you almost heard the whisper, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul says, if you're gonna grow, you gotta understand that there's a struggle. There's a struggle within. Are you in the battle? Now, number three is where we have to swallow hard and put our safety belts on. We've seen the source of sin, we see the struggle with sin, and now we find 
the contradiction of sin. And you can see Paul's spiritual circuit board almost explode in verses 24 to 25. Now he backs up a little bit and he theologizes. He says, I find then, verse 21, the principle, this reality, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. He's brutally honest. He's honest about his struggle. He understands that to wage the war, you have to know the enemy. And folks, the enemy is, is us. You are your greatest enemy. Paul says, I find the principle that evil is present in me. Have you found the principle that evil is present in you? Have you been on that discovery tour? Have you found that principle in you? I'm sure you've seen it, but have you discovered it? Do you know it? Have you dissected it? Do you understand it? I hope you're the one in verse 21, the one who wants to do good. I hope that's you. If you know the Lord, of course you want to do good. The question is, have you found, have you discovered the principle that evil is present in you. Are you deeply and keenly aware of your propensity to sin, your proclivity to sin, your besetting sin? So beginning in verse 22, going through 23, he outlines the contradiction between indwelling sin and his justified soul. This is where it gets, you can see him musing and thinking he says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Do you understand that? Paul says, there, when I read my Bible, when I read the law, when I read the New Testament, when I see the principles of God, I, I, I joyfully concur with it. How can I disagree with that? No Christian reads, thou shalt not steal, and says, oh, I can't wait to go down to this drugstore today and steal bubble gum. We, joy, we, we agree with it. The heart that's been saved joyfully concurs with the law of God in the inner man. By the way, this is one of the reasons that I think it's, it's a little of a bit of a stretch to say that Paul is an unbeliever here. Unbelievers don't joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But, verse 23, but I see a different principle, a different law in the members of my body, in my flesh. And here's our, here's our term, waging war, declaring war against the principle, the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. What is he talking about that here? When God invades a sinful soul, a war begins. God will win that war, but that war will not be ultimately won until the day we are resurrected. Until that great day, when we're free from sin, new bodies, there is an ongoing daily, hourly, momentary battle to do what is right and to not do what is wrong. Do you understand that? Have you felt that? Do you sense that? Did you, did you have it this morning? I promise you'll have it before lunch. I love how Christopher Ash outlines this. This is really, really excellent. He says, I feel like a prisoner who has been set free and has crossed into friendly territory. But 
the enemy troops keep coming over the border and kidnapping me back into my old prison. End quote. Can I stretch onto his illustration a little bit more? He's right. But the door of the prison is ripped off the hinges. We don't have to stay there. Probably the most important verse in this whole section regarding our understanding and our self-assessment is verse 24. Wretched man that I am. This self-assessment is the most rare but necessary conclusion for spiritual growth. Don't dislocate your spiritual shoulder, patting yourself on the back and seeing how all things are great. Uh, we, We talked a little bit about the fact that the longer I'm a believer, you would think that the longer you're a believer, the less you sin and you do in maybe the bigger categories. But I find the longer that I live as a Christian, the more sin I see and the more subtle and, 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 and less known species of sin in my heart that I never saw when I was converted at 16. Do you see that? That the more you grow, it's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know I was capable of that. Wow, I've been doing that for years. I've been thinking that for years, and I didn't even see it as pride, understand it as lust, see it as covetousness. Wretched man that I am. If you come to the gospel for psychological self-esteem, you are going to be woefully disappointed. If you come to the gospel to esteem a great Savior who died for your sins, then you don't have self-esteem problems at all. Wretched man that I am. And then I love this. He doesn't say what will set me free. What's the pronoun here? What's the question? Who, it's a person, who will rescue me? Who will set me free from this body of death? A lot of disagreement about what this body of death is. There's, there's a, uh, the legend, and, and it may be true, that um, uh, a murderer was, was bound wrist to wrist, knee to knee, ankle to ankle, torso to torso with the person he was murdered. He was attached to the body of the death. And that over the course of a few days, the, the impurities of that body would infect the, the, the murderer and he would die. And that's, a, that's an interesting illustration. It might be in play here. I think there's something more though. Who will set me free from, this bo- from the body of this death? He's saying the flesh of this death. Who will set me free from this problem I have in my unredeemed yet to be glorified humanist? How can I possibly be set free from this prison which keeps grabbing me and bringing me back into its doors? Before you answer that question, would you flip over to Psalm 130? This is not uniquely a New Testament problem or issue. Psalm 130. It's significant that this is in the section of the songs of ascents. These were, uh, were is ascending. Your, these were the, the prayers in the psalms that you would, you would pray on the southern steps as you went up to the temple mount to prepare your heart for, for um, God-honoring worship as a Jew. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my prayers, my supplications. Listen to this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? You ever had anything that you were trying to count and you used five scratch chicken scratches? You know, five scratch chicken scratches. One, two, three, four, sideways. One, two, three, four, sideways. One, two, three, four, sideways. Over and over and over. What Paul is, excuse me, what the psalmist is saying here is, Lord, if you did that, three, four, scratch. One, two, three, four, scratch. If you marked my iniquities, I'd be undone. Who could possibly stand? And then there's a verse four. But... There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now do you see the inner workings of what God's doing? He lets us wrestle with our sin, experience victory and defeat so that we could come back and say, oh, Lord, thank you for not holding me accountable for all those iniquities and thank you for forgiving my sin. The fact that God has left us in this battle for sanctification is such a precious gift because we understand and know grace and mercy and forgiveness in ways that we would have never understood had he, not, had he just justified us and taken us to heaven. We learn to hate sin in the same way that he does. So who, not what, who's gonna deliver Paul? Verse 25, thanks be to my effort, my discipline. Thanks be to my discipler, my caregiver leader. Thanks be, what does it say? Thanks be to God. Why is he thanking God for this sanctifying grace? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He specifies the second person of the Trinity, the, the living, resurrected Savior. He specifies him. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. We understand that. My mind wants to serve the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. I get that I'm in a battle, he says. John Piper, I love these words. If you're fighting sin, you're alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway, unopposed, you are dead no matter how lively this sin makes you feel. Take heart embattled saint, end quote. I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther just, his way with words tends to penetrate me probably more than any other Christian I've read. He says this, to be sure, if ungodliness and worldly lusts were painted on the wall of the house, you might well run out of it. Or if they were knit into a red coat, you might take it off and put on a gray one. Or if they grew in your hair, you might have your hair shaved off and go back, go to being bald-headed. Or if they were baked into the bread, you might eat roots instead of bread. But since they, this is your worldly lust, your ungodliness, since they stick in your heart and possess you through and through, where will you run without taking yourself along? 
My good man, he says, the great enticement is within you and you must first run and flee from yourself. As James says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away out of his own lust and enticed, end quote. I love that, that Christian song that Cademan's Call sings, I'm running from the clothes I'm wearing. You ever feel that? Now, this is pretty negative. Fight, fight, we see, see. But you know what's amazing? That we have any desire to do what's right at all. Oh, we can beat ourselves up, and we should, over the battle against sin, and we would be right. What's amazing is we have any inclination to do what's right and honor God at all. I remember when our boys were learning to ride bikes. Um, there were many failed and some aborted attempts. I would run along with them typically over uh, at the master's college where, where they were. I'm thinking specifically of you, Luke. Uh, and there was a, a gradual hill with grass on it and I would run along. You want grass, right? Because things happen and you want to be able to prepare for them. I would run along and there was a fall over and over again. Fall, fall, fall. Then there was that moment where the handlebar shook and the balance was caught and my boy was riding the bike. When that happened, I wasn't amazed that he'd fallen. I was amazed that he could ride. That we struggle with our humanness, our sinfulness, is not amazing. That we actually get up and try to obey, that's amazing. If you want to obey, take heart embattled saint. If you've been redeemed by Christ, purchased by his blood, there should be an ongoing, never-ending, exasperating, painful, ever-present struggle in your heart with sin. And if your life is not characterized by this struggle, you need to carefully evaluate whether or not you are truly converted. One of my historical heroes, J.C. Ryle, says this, unless you really know the character of your own heart, you will never value the gospel as you ought. You will never love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. You will never see how absolutely necessary it was that he should suffer death upon the cross in order to deliver our souls from hell and bring us to God. And then he concludes by saying this, terribly black must be that guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. There's a contradiction in our hearts. Do you understand the contradiction? Do you feel the contradiction? Can I give you a little hint at how to resolve all of that? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The tools for the battle are in the gospel. And beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, he outlines these tools. He says, this is the problem in chapter 7. And in chapter 8, he's going to say, here's how you have victory. 
And it's a good chapter. Can't wait till we get there. This passage gives me a burden for those who may have a casual battle with sin instead of an ongoing serious one. Let me just encourage you, if, if you really wrestle, that's a good thing. Keep wrestling. But if you're able to sin without any part of your soul rising up and saying, hang on a second, I want to beg you to consider the health, the state of your soul, whether you really know the Lord Jesus. It's not perfection, it's progress that he's looking for. Are you progressing? I'm going to pray in a moment, and after I do, uh, our prayer room is going to be open, and we'll be able to, I think Ben and Becky will be there. If we can pray with you, pray for you, please don't leave without us talking with you. And if you're in the battle, take heart embattled saint. Father, we are those who know this struggle. We have scars on our soul from these battles. We have bleeding wounds from these battles. Help us to say thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who's given us victory in heaven and provides sustenance for us here on the earth. Cause us to know how to fight indwelling sin as we study chapter eight. Outline in our hearts a battle plan for victory. We pray this because of Christ. Amen.